This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for pulling your chair up to the cool kids table. We are up to episode number 479. And as I've been talking about for a while, I'm getting excited about 500. I don't know what that means, but it's coming up strong in just a couple of months. I started this show five years ago because I believe that success leaves clues. And any time that you can sit down and have a conversation with someone who's been successful and done cool things, I got to tell you, you can't help but pick up some information because they'll leave an idea, a nugget, a theory, maybe just a little lesson behind and you're all the better for it. So as we've been doing the show, that's what I've been learning and I hope being able to share with everybody who tunes in and listens to the show. Now, I am really excited about today's show. I was supposed to interview this guest, gosh, about a year ago, and he got sick and some things changed, and my life took me into a whole busy different direction, and I never got a chance to do it, but things happened for a reason. So Colin Gwynn is, uh, we have a mutual friend, and Colin Gwynn is a lot of things. He is an entrepreneur. He is an out-of-the-box thinker. Uh, He's an architect of life, would be the way I would sort of describe him. But many of you would know him for one of two things. He has been described to me, and I don't know if he'd call himself this, but as sort of the person who really founded the commercial drone industry, or at least got it launched into a real thing. I mean, over the last several years, we've all seen drones kind of appear on the scene, but uh, they are now pretty much used in a lot of commercial ways, and it was Colin who sort of architected the beginning of that. But if you don't know him as sort of one of the fathers of the commercial drone industry, you might know him as Colin From Colin and Christie, from season five, 15 years ago, and season 31 this year of The Amazing Race. Now, I got to tell you, my wife is one of the biggest fans of that television show. She has watched every season, never missed an episode. And when she got a chance to meet Colin and Christie, my wife was a little bit starstruck because uh, in addition to the fact that they won a million dollars this year, Uh, They're also two of the coolest, most interesting people you could sit down with. So I asked him, I said, Colin, we got to do this interview. And like all good entrepreneurs, he said, let's find a way to do it. And so here we are today. So Colin, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Well, Tom, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope I can live up to that uh, introduction. <laughs> People say that all the time. I must give really good introductions. It's but... Very good introduction. Absolutely. I'm like, keep talking. <laughs> yes, it's me you're talking about. I love it. <laughs> well, it also might be that, that I, I get some really cool guests here on Cool Things Entrepreneurs right. Do. So before we sort of dive into the drone industry 
And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the amazing race and sort of some life changes that Colin may have had from season five to season 31. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about sort of your career path and who you are. So you you now have a company. You're the founder of a company called Gwyn Partners, which is a product to marketing consultancy. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe your early days in business, how you started out, and then what is Gwyn Partners? Yes, I, you know, I guess where do you want to jump in? I mean, if we if we talk about how we got to where we are, Gwyn Partners, that kind of starts with the birth of the drone industry and DJI and sure. creating some of the early drones in the space. You want to just kind of start all yeah. the way back there? Let, and, let, yeah, let's do it all. Let's go. Yeah, cool. So um, I guess uh, always have been an entrepreneur. I think um, since I was 11 years old at military school, you know, on the other side of the country selling, uh, you know, popcorn and Dr. Pepper out of my dorm room. Um, <laughs> but I um, have always kind of wanted to do my own thing and uh, know that my uh, my income is, is derived from me closing business or or, or getting stuff done and not having to necessarily have a have a you know traditional corporate you know boss or whatever, um, and so that that freedom was always uh, really valued by me. Um, and so you know, fast forward to like 12 years ago, um, I, I had a home builder marketing firm, and we did uh, marketing solutions for you know really high end custom home builders, websites, brochures, SEO. All that kind of stuff, and um, as the housing, you know, downturn was happening, we were focusing on you know really really high end builders that were building these incredible estates, and sometimes we would hire helicopters to come in and we'd put the photographer in the back seat, <laughs> take the door off, and get aerial photos of these homes, and um, but they they were never great because the, photo- the the helicopter pilots didn't want to fly too low because of noise abatement and things like that, but. We definitely, it was like a big differentiator for us. And so we wanted to figure out a way to get a, a high-end architectural, you know, you know, photography, digital camera, call it 80 feet in the air. So you could get like a bird's eye view of these, of these big estates. And so that's kind of where I started uh, researching ways to do that. And I, I looked everything from blimps to, you know, uh, kites. I was a big kite surfer and, um, <laughs> you know, since like kind of the late 90s. And I was looking at, at ways to do it you know, with big poles off the back of a truck. And I found that there were some people that were buying these really big remote control helicopters and kind of dremeling them and, and kind of Frankensteining, machining some parts and buying all these different parts from all over the world and kind of, you know, fashioning a way to put, you know, a, a Canon 5D on the front of one of these remote control helicopters and, and take pictures from the ground. And I was like, man, that is right up my alley because I, I was always a, a, a geek growing up with all the kind of toys and tech and RC cars and things like that. So I was like, this satisfies our need to take aerial photography and also may give me an excuse to buy a $25,000 toy helicopter, like sign me up. <laughs> and uh, so I went to Christy at the time and I, you know, she was getting like, you know, a, a, her bonus check that year was right around that amount. And I was like, you know what we should do with your bonus check is build a toy helicopter. <laughs> and Which is just what like, every what wife wants to hear. About? That's that's exactly. Yeah. Let's take all the money you've earned and build a yes. flying camera. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and she's like, what? I'm like, trust me, it's going to pay for itself. And uh, she let me do it. And so, <laughs> well, Christy, Christy, Christy has proven herself to be pretty awesome in a few ways. So I'm not surprised. Yes, she has. Yes, she has. So we, uh, that was probably 12 years ago or something and, you know, spent 
it took six months to build this thing and machine all the parts and buy all the little components from all over the world. And eventually we had this helicopter that would fly a, a Canon 5D and take really high-end architectural photography from 60, 80, 100, hundreds of feet, whatever. And if the house was on a cliff, you could fly it out off the cliff and look back at the house. You know, we had this little flying camera. And, um, and then a few years into that, Canon came out with what they was the 5D Mark II, and it was the first digital SLR that shot high-quality digital video, full HD digital video, in kind of a really compact package. I remember they they filmed the season finale of House that year was filmed all on this camera to kind of make this point of like, look how high quality this camera can be for a little handheld uh, digital SLR. So we were we were among the first people to to get one of those cameras, and then we started shooting video from the drone and realized, wow. That's where the market is, the ability to fly around and, and capture aerial video, whether it be primarily for production and, um, you know, kind of content creation and content capture, but also for like inspections and surveys of, you know, looking at land before a, a commercial construction project or, you know, monitoring an oil well or, you know, other use cases. But the primary use case back then was, you know, storytelling and, you know, creating captivating shots you know one of our early projects was jj uh, abrams wanted to you know capture the the perspective from superman as he was learning to fly and so it required flying this little thing down to like two feet off the ground in a cornfield and then flying up hundreds of feet up in the air and to get this continuous shot of him like doing these bounding jumps you know from from field to field and, the, and you couldn't do that any other way. You couldn't do that with a big crane. You couldn't do that with a, with a full-scale helicopter. And um, so these, these flying cameras had a really unique capability to capture you know, these, these uh, really interesting angles that couldn't be captured before. The downside was the gimbal or the thing on the front of the, the helicopter that carried the camera and, and, and tried to stabilize it was not really suited for video is more suited for aerial photo where you're taking a, a really fast shutter speed snapshot and when you started using video it was really shaky and 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 really not very good i mean we would charge ten thousand dollars a day to take our toy helicopters out to a movie set and fly around and quite frankly the footage was terrible you know and, and <laughs> but it was like kind of all they had and and so they would do all this post-production and stabilization and try to make it you know quasi usable and so it, it was it became really apparent look if we could figure out a way to stabilize and, and put a really high quality gimbal on the front of these helicopters and shoot really stable footage, this would be, you know, game changing for the for the film industry. We have a special sponsor for this episode. Sundance Media Group, SMG. Having been producing training for trade events and public safety organizations for 25 years, but over the years, SMG's area of focus has evolved from audio, video, and software applications for media production to best practices training into the world of SUAS. SMG serves as a consultant within the SUAS industry, offering training and consulting on all SUAS topics. With an intimate knowledge of the FAA, their collective experience with instructors and remote pilots nationwide is the foundation for helping drone companies with their go-to-market strategies. Thanks to SMG for sponsoring this episode. You know, most people who had a company that marketed high-end homes would build a flying camera, for lack of a better term, 
to take pictures of high-end homes, and then they would probably maybe sell it to other home builders or other realtors. But you think big. And that's something when I met you earlier this year, I walked out of your offices and I thought, wow, I don't think like this guy. You think like <laughs> 95 steps ahead. I mean, as you told that story, you said we built a camera to take pictures of these houses. And the next thing, J.J. Abrams was hiring us. That wasn't too much of a distance on the time-wise, but in the scope of the way most business people think, that's a giant jump. How did you <laughs> how did you do that? Well, you know, it's interesting how so many of those so many uh, of the things in my life kind of tie around this amazing race story arc, both from a personal development perspective and a professional de- development and things like that. But, you know, so we we went from shooting photos to shooting video, right? And the people who are willing to pay the most for video are the people who are spending the most budget creating videos, which is basically movie and Hollywood and, and yeah. network television. Mm-hmm. Right. And so right around the time where we built a helicopter that could fly a, a, a Canon 5D Mark II that could shoot HD video was a big reunion that the amazing race was having because it had been on the air for 10 years and we were in the fifth season. And we got invited to go to Miami and all these amazing racers that had been on the first 10, se- you know, 10 years of amazing race were meeting in Miami for this little weekend, you know, reunion party. And I'm like, I'm packing this thing up. Like I got to get this thing ready to go show the producers of the amazing race, because this tool would be amazing to travel around the world and allow them to capture aerial video in places where they're like hiring helicopters all over the place. They could just we could just take this around the world. And so that was like a really huge opportunity to get on a network television show. And we obviously had a connection with them because we'd been on the show five years earlier. And so we, uh, we took it out and we demoed it. I, I kind of gave a quick demonstration. It took a big aerial photo of all the group of racers and, and Bertram Van Munster, the you know, uh, producer of the show said, Hey, come out to LA and give us a proper demo of this thing, which was a couple weeks later. I did that. And he, he was like, okay, we want to hire you to sh- shoot the the opening, you know, the, the start of this next race, which is in like a month. So that ended up being our first network television gig. And, you know, while I was out there, we started doing, you know, through meeting people and getting connections. We started doing demonstrations for people that were, that were making movies. And, you know, we had, we were kind of the cool kids in town because we had this really amazing flying camera thing. And there wasn't a whole lot of those at that time. And so every time you give a demo for one person, they'd be like, you got to talk to so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And as long as you just follow up and set those meetings and, and, and basically we just spent, you know, 70 hours a week <laughs> driving around and giving demonstrations and, you know, probably, you know, only 15 hours a week was actually paid work. And we were just giving tons of, of demos and, and, you know, kind of dog and pony shows. Um, and, you know, that just leads right up to the top of we were shooting for Michael Bay and J.J. Abrams and uh, Steven Spielberg. And, uh, you know, it was a long list of, you know, really high end filmmakers. And but what we learned was that, look, if this could be stable, if, if we didn't have to do so much post-production and it wasn't so shaky, this would be a total game changer. And so I think where kind of what you referred to earlier is like instead of just going, well, whatever, we're still getting plenty of business and I'm just going to keep doing this. It was, you know, the kind of the thinking ahead was like, okay, someone's going to figure out how to stabilize this image. And I want to be the one to do that because then we're, 
creating a more valuable deliverable than anyone else. And obviously thinking from like a salesperson my whole life, it's like, how can I make the strongest value proposition of anyone else so that I want my pitch to be a no brainer sale, right? I don't want to ever be selling something where, you know, I have to rely on them thinking I'm a good guy to, to, you know, pick my solution. And so I want to always try to stay ahead from a value proposition standpoint. And so I started kind of going on this quest to figure out a way to stabilize this gimbal. And I met with a bunch of firms, engineering firms here in the States. And, um, it, you know, the prices were very high. I mean, we're talking half a million to a million dollars of, of NRE or non-recurring non engineering fees to build just a prototype of one of these things. And that was like a very, very simple system. And at the same time, there was a company out of China called DJI. At that time, they were like a 14, 15 person company that made a little autopilot. So the autopilot went on our remote control helicopter and it was like a little computer system that made it much easier to fly because you're flying these things really far away. You can't be relying on like pure RC helicopter piloting skills. You need mm -hmm. this little system on board to kind of stabilize it and you know keep you from crashing this thing when you're flying it four or 500 yards away. So this company, DJI, made that system and it was while I was setting one up one time that I realized, man, the same algorithms they're using to stabilize this helicopter could easily be used to stabilize the camera on the front of the helicopter. And had that conversation with them. We, we went out and met with them and they, and you know, the owner of the company, the founder of DJI, Frank, uh, or Wang Tao is his Chinese name and Frank's his American name, um, was basically my same age. We're within six months apart. We had a lot of similarities. We we're both into these, you know, RC helicopters. He just built this company to make these autopilots because he wanted to go to the park and fly RC helicopters around and impress girls, <laughs> but they were really hard to fly and he kept crashing them. So he built a stabilizer system to make it easier to fly. And, um, anyways, I said, Hey, do you guys think you could do this? Whatever. And, uh, ultimately we hired them as a contract engineering firm to build us a prototype. Once we had a prototype, this was a game changer. We could fly around a camera in the air and shoot perfectly stable video. And now we went to those same directors and, and directors of photography and producers that we had been doing demos for for the previous couple of years. And we said, check this out. And every single one of them was just absolutely floored. And they said, we want this on every single thing we shoot from now on. And so quickly we realized, okay, we're not even going to be able to scale up fast enough to you know, supply the amount of demand that's going to come from the ability to move a camera around in 3D space with perfect stability. And, and, and furthermore, someone's probably going to develop a similar technology within 12 to 18 months once they see that we've developed this technology. And so, you know, again, thinking ahead, it's like, instead of being the only outfit in town that could do this for 12 to 18 months, why don't we just make this, productize it and sell it to the world mm. and just basically equip all of our competitors with this hardware so that everyone can shoot stable video and then we'll just let them fight for the market of who's going to win the jobs. And so we did that and I said, "Hey, you know, Frank said you should you should start up DJI North America which will focus on kind of the flying camera aspect of our business. They were doing kind of the autopilot stuff and um, at that time DJI, you know, they're like 3 million dollars of revenue. So they don't have capital to give me to start up a company, but they're like, Hey, you think you can sell these high end, you know, gimbals that we're making, then we'll send you a bunch of them to your garage and you <laughs> sell them. And then when you get the money from selling them, you can start the business with that, 
you know, with that money. <laughs> and once you're kind of up and running and you're in the black, you know, you're, you're cash flow positive, then you can pay us back for the, for the equipment, you know? And, <laughs> and so we, we did a deal. I was 48% owner of DJI North America and they were 52%. So they could, you know, kind of have the, the ultimate control of the brand and stuff like that. And our, our job here was to sell the product, create the brand and the identity and the content and, and all the kind of revenue strategy for selling the flying camera aspect of DJI. Now, obviously, everyone knows DJI now is all about cameras and stabilization and flying cameras. They're, they're, they don't sell like plain autopilots, really. Um, and so uh, we did that. They sent us a bunch of gimbals. I started, you know, me and my uh, uh, camera operator, Brad, at the time, we were selling gimbals out of my garage to like websites and um, using that cash, we eventually got an office space. We hired people. And so fast forward like less than 12 months, I think it was like nine months later, we had $6 million cash in the bank. We were, we were paid off in full back to the, to the parent company. And we were off to a, a $20 million revenue year. And after doing 3 million the, the year before. And so, you know, again, it's kind of like, okay, we can just keep doing this because obviously we grew 6X in, in one year. Um, but what we noticed was that probably 80% of the people who were, you know, interested in buying this high end professional flying camera system, they were costing kind of 10 to 15,000 for a system. And, um, you know, about 80% of our interested leads would end up not purchasing because there was so much unknown around how much is this thing going to cost me? What if I spend all this time building it? It wasn't so much the cost because these guys were spending 10 grand on a lens without blinking an eye. And that's like one prime lens. And it was more about if I spend three weeks of my time and 10, 15 grand on this thing, and then I go crash at my first flight, then that's, I'm going to feel like an idiot. That's just going to be a colossal waste of time. So I, I have and, to jump in here and say that actually yeah. happens a lot because I had a lot. I, I was I spoke for one of the other drone companies at their sales meeting. I was their uh, their speaker who came into their team meeting, and so part of what they did is they gave me a drone so that I could fly it and learn their product before I came and spoke to their sales team, which was an awesome gift because when it came to the door, I did. They, they had said, "Hey, can we pay you in a drone?" And I said, "No, I didn't have an interest." And so they paid me in cash and gave me a drone, and That's I was awesome. really I was really excited to get it. And my kids thought, "Oh my god, this is the coolest thing ever!" This is like four years ago, three years ago and you know drones had just become really hot i i read the manual i assembled the whole thing i took it outside my wife and kids literally went to get their shoes on and before they walked outside i had crashed it into a tree and shaved <laughs> off all of the four propellers just down to nubs and they came yeah. out and the thing's laying on the ground and the camera had snapped off and i'm like yeah and my wife said how long like, did you yeah, have it up toy. three minutes <laughs> that and that that was all too common especially especially like six years ago right <laughs> and so that was that was the big unknown it is and we figured okay if there's some way we could overcome that then we could really increase our conversion of these people that have the desire to shoot high quality video from the sky because we had all these people that wanted what we had but there was just too much of an unknown for them to kind of make the purchasing decision. So we started building these little tiny trainer drones in Austin and sticking a, a little holder on that you could stick a GoPro on it. We, we did all the soldering. We put it all kind of bubble wrapped it all and we put it in a box and we'd say, look, for a thousand bucks, here's a little, 
you know, kit drone that's all pre-programmed and pre-built for you. You can put a GoPro on it. You can fly this thing around and you can at least get a sense for what it's like to get aerial photos and video, but it won't be stabilized or anything you could actually use in a production, but it'll like give you an idea of what it's like to fly a camera around. And by the way, the big, you know, $15,000 system, it flies exactly like that. So if you're able to fly this thing and you learn to fly it, then you'll be able to fly the big one. And of course for them, it's just like, Oh, okay, cool. A thousand bucks, cool <laughs> toy, flying RC helicopter, like we'll take it. And so that was really easy to get people to at least, you know, kind of try that. And, and most of the people, I think over 70% of people that we sold those systems to came back and bought the $15,000 one within a couple of months. And so we're like, okay, this is working really well to, to, you know, get people kind of be the gateway drug into aerial <laughs> photography. <laughs> And so uh, we ended up, I went back to Frank, you know, they're, they're running the China operation. I said, look, we need to put all these components in one box so that it's really easy for the user to just assemble themselves, put together and, and go out and, and be the training wheels for, you know, getting into uh, flying cameras and stuff. And that ended up being. Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for pulling your chair up to the cool kids table. We are up to episode number 479, and as I've been talking about for a while, I'm getting excited about 500. I don't know what that means, but it's coming up strong in just a couple of months. I started this show five years ago because I believe that success leaves clues, and any time that you can sit down and have a conversation with someone who's been successful and done cool things, I got to tell you, you can't help but pick up some information because they'll leave an idea, a nugget, a theory, maybe just a little lesson behind and you're all the better for it. So as we've been doing the show, that's what I've been learning and I hope being able to share with everybody who tunes in and listens to the show. Now, I am really excited about today's show. I was supposed to interview this guest, gosh, about a year ago and he got sick and some things changed and my life took me into a whole busy different direction and I never got a chance to do it, but things happen for a reason. So Colin Gwynn is, uh, we have a mutual friend and Colin Gwynn is a lot of things. He is an entrepreneur. He is an out of the box thinker. Uh, he's an architect of life would be the way I would sort of describe him. But many of you would know him for one of two things. He has been described to me, and I don't know if he'd call himself this, but as sort of the person who really founded the commercial drone industry, or at least got it launched into a real thing. I mean, over the last several years, we've all seen drones kind of appear on the scene, but uh, they are now pretty much used in a lot of commercial ways, and it was Colin who sort of architected the beginning of that. But if you don't know him as sort of one of the fathers of the commercial drone industry, you might know him as Colin from Colin and Christie, from season five, 15 years ago, and season 31 this year of The Amazing Race. Now, I got to tell you, my wife is one of the biggest fans of that television show. She has watched every season, never missed an episode. And when she got a chance to meet Colin and Christy, my wife was a little bit starstruck because uh, in addition to the fact that they won a million dollars this year, uh, they're also two of the coolest, most interesting people you could sit down with. So I asked him, I said, Colin, we got to do this interview. And like all good entrepreneurs, he said, let's find a way to do it. 
And so here we are today. So Colin, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Well, Tom, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope I can live up to that uh, introduction. <laughs> <laughs> People say that all the time. I must give really good introductions. It's a very good introduction. Absolutely. I'm like, keep talking. <laughs> yes, this is me you're talking about? I love it. <laughs> well, it also might be that, that I, I get some really cool guests here on Cool Things Entrepreneurs right. Do. So before we sort of dive into the drone industry, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the amazing race and sort of some life changes that Colin may have had from season five to season 31. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about sort of your career path and who you are. So you you now have a company. You're the founder of a company called Gwyn Partners, which is a product to marketing consultancy. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe your early days in business, how you started out, and then what is Gwyn Partners? Yes, I, you know, I guess where do you want to jump in? I mean, if we if we talk about how we got to where we are at Gwyn Partners, that kind of starts with the birth of the drone industry and DJI and sure. creating some of the early drones in the space. You want to just kind of start all yeah. the way back there? Let, and, let, yeah, let's do it all. Let's go. Yeah, cool. So um, I guess uh, always have been an entrepreneur. I think um, since I was 11 years old at military school, you know, on the other side of the country selling, uh, you know, popcorn and Dr. Pepper out of my dorm room. Um, <laughs> but I um, have always kind of wanted to do my own thing and uh, know that my uh, my income is, is derived from me closing business or or, or getting stuff done and not having to necessarily have a have a you know traditional corporate you know boss or whatever, um, and so that that freedom was always uh, really valued by me. Um, and so you know, fast forward to like 12 years ago, um, I, I had a home builder marketing firm, and we did uh, marketing solutions for you know really high end custom home builders, websites, brochures, SEO. All that kind of stuff, and um, as the housing, you know, downturn was happening, we were focusing on you know really really high end builders that were building these incredible estates, and sometimes we would hire helicopters to come in and we put the photographer in the back seat, <laughs> take the door off, and get aerial photos of these homes, and um, but they they were never great because the, the the helicopter pilots didn't want to fly too low because of noise abatement and things like that, but. We definitely, it was like a big differentiator for us. And so we wanted to figure out a way to get a, a high-end architectural, you know, you know, photography, digital camera, call it 80 feet in the air. So you could get like a bird's eye view of these, of these big estates. And so that's kind of where I started uh, researching ways to do that. And I, I looked everything from blimps to, you know, uh, kites. I was a big kite surfer and, um, <laughs> you know, since like kind of the late nineties and I was looking at, at ways to do it you know, with big poles off the back of a truck. And I found that there were some people that were buying these really big remote control helicopters and kind of dremeling them and, and kind of Frankensteining, machining some parts and buying all these different parts from all over the world and kind of, you know, fashioning a way to put, you know, a, a Canon 5D on the front of one of these remote control helicopters and, and take pictures from the ground. And I was like, man, that is right up my alley because I, I was always a, a, a geek growing up with all the kind of toys and tech and RC cars and things like that. So I was like, this satisfies our need to take aerial photography and also may give me an excuse to buy a $25,000 toy helicopter, like sign me up. <laughs> and uh, so I went to Christy at the time and I, you know, she was getting like, you know, a, a, her bonus check that year was right around that amount. And I was like, 
you know what we should do with your bonus check is build a toy helicopter. <laughs> and Which is just what like, every what wife wants to hear. About? That's that's exactly. Yeah. Let's take all the money you've earned and build a yes. flying camera. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and she's like, what? I'm like, trust me, it's going to pay for itself. And uh, she let me do it. And so, well, Christy, Christy, Christy has proven herself to be pretty awesome in a few ways. So I'm not surprised. Yes, she has. Yes, she has. So we, uh, that was probably 12 years ago or something. And, you know, spent, it took six months to build this thing and machine all the parts and buy all the little components from all over the world. And eventually we had this helicopter that would fly a, a Canon 5D and take really high end architectural photography from 60, 80, 100, hundreds of feet, whatever. And if the house was on a cliff, you could fly it out off the cliff and look back at the house. You know, we had this little flying camera. And um, and then a few years into that, Canon came out with what they was the 5D Mark II. And it was the first digital SLR that shot high quality digital video, full HD digital video in kind of a really compact package. I remember they, they filmed the season finale of house that year was filmed all on this camera to kind of make this point of like, look how high quality this camera can be for a little handheld uh, digital SLR. So we were, we were among the first people to, to get one of those cameras. And then we started shooting video from the drone and realized, wow, that's where the market is. The ability to fly around and, and capture aerial video, whether it be primarily for production and um, you know, kind of content creation and content capture, but also for like inspections and surveys of, you know, looking at land before a, a commercial construction project or, you know, monitoring an oil well or, you know, other use cases. But the primary use case back then was, you know, storytelling and, you know, creating captivating shots. You know, one of our early projects was J.J. Uh, Abrams wanted to, you know, capture the, the perspective from Superman as he was learning to fly. And so it required flying this little thing down to like two feet off the ground in a cornfield and then flying up hundreds of feet up in the air and to get this continuous shot of him like doing these bounding jumps you know from from field to field and the, and you couldn't do that any other way you couldn't do that with a big crane you couldn't do that with a with a full-scale helicopter and um so these these flying cameras had a really unique capability to capture you know these these uh really interesting angles that couldn't be captured before the downside was the gimbal or the thing on the front of the, the helicopter that carried the camera and, and and tried to stabilize it was not really suited for video is more suited for aerial photo where you're taking a, a really fast shutter speed snapshot and when you started using video it was really shaky and 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 really not very good i mean we would charge ten thousand dollars a day to take our toy helicopters out to a movie set and fly around and quite frankly the footage was terrible you know and, and but it was like kind of all they had and and so they would do all this post-production and stabilization and try to make it you know quasi usable and so it, it was it became really apparent look if we could figure out a way to stabilize and, and put a really high quality gimbal on the front of these helicopters and shoot really stable footage, this would be, you know, game changing for the, for the film industry. We have a special sponsor for this episode, Sundance Media Group, SMG. Having been producing training for trade events and public safety organizations for 25 years, but over the years, SMG's area of focus has evolved from audio, video, and software applications for media production to best practices training into the world of SUAS. SMG serves as a consultant within the SUAS industry, offering training and consulting on all SUAS topics. 
with an intimate knowledge of the FAA, their collective experience with instructors and remote pilots nationwide is the foundation for helping drone companies with their go-to-market strategies. Thanks to SMG for sponsoring this episode. You know, most people who had a company that marketed high-end homes would build a flying camera, for lack of a better term, to take pictures of high-end homes, and then they would probably maybe sell it to other home builders or other realtors. But you think big, and that's something when I met you earlier this year, I walked out of your offices and I thought, wow, I don't think like this guy. You think like <laughs> 95 steps ahead. I mean, as you told that story, you said, we built a camera to take pictures of these houses, and the next thing, J.J. Abrams was hiring us. That wasn't too much of a distance on the time-wise, but in the scope of the way most business people think, that's a giant jump. How did you, <laughs> how did you do that? Well, you know, it's interesting how so many of, this, so many, uh, of the things in my life kind of tie around this amazing race story arc, both from a personal development perspective and a professional de development and things like that. But, you know, so we, we went from shooting photos to shooting video, right? And the people who are willing to pay the most for video are the people who are spending the most budget creating videos, which is basically movie and, Hollywood, and, and yeah. network television, mm -hmm. right? And so right around the time where we built a helicopter that could fly a, a, a Canon 5D Mark II that could shoot HD video was a big reunion that The Amazing Race was having because it had been on the air for 10 years and we were in the fifth season. And we got invited to go to Miami and all these amazing racers that have been on the first 10, you know, 10 years of amazing race were meeting in Miami for this little weekend, you know, reunion party. And I'm like, I'm packing this thing up. Like I got to get this thing ready to go show the producers of the amazing race because this tool would be amazing to travel around the world and allow them to capture aerial video in places where they're like hiring helicopters all over the place. They could just we could just take this around the world. And <laughs> so that was like a really huge opportunity to get on a network television show. And we obviously had a connection with them because we'd been on the show five years earlier. And so we, uh, we took it out and we demoed it. I, I kind of gave a quick demonstration. It took a big aerial photo of all the group of racers and, and Bertram Van Munster, the you know, uh, producer of the show said, Hey, come out to LA and give us a proper demo of this thing, which was a couple weeks later. I did that. And he, he was like, okay, we want to hire you to sh shoot the, the opening, you know, the, the start of this next race, which is in like a month. So that ended up being our first network television gig. And, you know, while I was out there, we started doing, you know, through meeting people and getting connections. We started doing demonstrations for people that were, that were making movies. And, you know, we had, we were kind of the cool kids in town because we had this really amazing flying camera thing. And there wasn't a whole lot of those at that time. And so every time you give a demo for one person, they'd be like, you got to talk to so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And as long as you just follow up and set those meetings and, and, and basically we just spent, you know, 70 hours a week <laughs> driving around and giving demonstrations and, you know, probably, you know, only 15 hours a week was actually paid work. And we were just giving tons of, of demos and, and, you know, kind of dog and pony shows. Um, and, you know, that just leads right up to the top of we were shooting for Michael Bay and J.J. Abrams and uh, Steven Spielberg. And, uh, you know, it was a long list of, you know, really high end filmmakers. And but what we learned was that, look, if this could be stable, if, if we didn't have to do so much post-production and it wasn't so shaky, 
this would be a total game changer. And so I think where kind of what you referred to earlier is like, instead of just going, well, whatever, we're still getting plenty of business and I'm just going to keep doing this. It was, you know, the kind of the thinking ahead was like, okay, someone's going to figure out how to stabilize this image. And I want to be the one to do that because then we're creating a more valuable deliverable than anyone else. And obviously thinking from like a salesperson my whole life, it's like, how can I make the strongest value proposition of anyone else so that I want my pitch to be a no brainer sale? Right. I don't want to ever be selling something where, you know, I have to rely on them thinking I'm a good guy to, to, you know, pick my solution. And so I want to always try to stay ahead from a value proposition standpoint. And so I started kind of going on this quest to figure out a way to stabilize this gimbal. And I met with a bunch of firms, engineering firms here in the States. And, um, and, you know, the prices were very high. I mean, we're talking half a million to a million dollars of, of NRE or non, non-recurring engineering fees to build just a prototype of one of these things. And that was like a very, very simple system. And at the same time, there was a company out of China called DJI. At that time, they were like a 14, 15 person company that made a little autopilot. So the autopilot went on our remote control helicopter and it was like a little computer system that made it much easier to fly because you're flying these things really far away. You can't be relying on like pure RC helicopter piloting skills. You need Mm -hmm. this little system on board to kind of stabilize it and, you know, keep you from crashing this thing when you're flying it four or 500 yards away. So this company, DJI, made that system. And it was while I was setting one up one time that I realized man, the same algorithms they're using to stabilize this helicopter could easily be used to stabilize the camera on the front of the helicopter. And had that conversation with them. We, we went out and met with them and they, and you know, the owner of the company, the founder of DJI, Frank, uh, or Wang Tao is his Chinese name and Frank's his American name, um, was basically my same age. We're within six months apart. We had a lot of similarities. We're both into these, you know, RC helicopters. He just built this company to make these autopilots because he wanted to go to the park and fly RC helicopters around and impress girls, (laughs) but they were really hard to fly and he kept crashing them. So he built a stabilizer system to make it easier to fly. And, um, anyways, I said, Hey, do you guys think you could do this? Whatever. And, uh, ultimately we hired them as a contract engineering firm to build us a prototype. Once we had a prototype, this was a game changer. We could fly around a camera in the air and shoot perfectly stable video. And now we went to those same directors and, and directors of photography and producers that we had been doing demos for for the previous couple of years. And we said, check this out. And every single one of them was just absolutely floored. And they said, we want this on every single thing we shoot from now on. And so quickly we realized, okay, we're not even going to be able to scale up fast enough to you know, supply the amount of demand that's going to come from the ability to move a camera around in 3D space with perfect stability. And, and, and furthermore, someone's probably going to develop a similar technology within 12 to 18 months once they see that we've developed this technology. And so, you know, again, thinking ahead, it's like, instead of being the only outfit in town that could do this for 12 to 18 months, why don't we just make this, productize it and sell it to the world Mm. and just basically equip all of our competitors with this hardware so that everyone can shoot stable video. And then we'll just let them fight for the market of who's going to win the jobs. And so we did that. And I said, Hey, you know, Frank said, you should, you should start up DJI North America, which will focus on kind of the flying camera aspect of our business. They were doing kind of the autopilot stuff. And, um, 
at that time, DJI, you know, they're like $3 million of revenue. So they don't have capital to give me to start up a company, but they're like, hey, you think you can sell these high-end, you know, gimbals that we're making, then we'll send you a bunch of them to your garage and you <laughs> sell them. And then when you get the money from selling them, you can start the business with that, you know, with that money. <laughs> and once you're kind of up and running and you're in the black, you know, you're, you're cash flow positive, then you can pay us back for the, for the equipment, you know? And, and so we, we did a deal. I was 48% owner of DJI North America and they were 52%. So they could, you know, kind of have the, the ultimate control of the brand and stuff like that. And our, our job here was to sell the product, create the brand and the identity and the content and, and all the kind of revenue strategy for selling the flying camera aspect of DJI. Now, obviously, everyone knows DJI now is all about cameras and stabilization and flying cameras. They're, they're, they don't sell like plain autopilots, really. Um, and so uh, we did that. They sent us a bunch of gimbals. I started, you know, me and my uh, uh, camera operator, Brad, at the time, we were selling gimbals out of my garage to like websites and um, using that cash. We eventually got an office space. We hired people. And so fast forward like less than 12 months, I think it was like nine months later, we had $6 million cash in the bank. We were, we were paid off in full back to the, to the parent company and we were off to a, a $20 million revenue year. And after doing 3 million the, the year before. And so, you know, again, it's kind of like, okay, we can just keep doing this because obviously we grew 6X in, in one year. Um, but what we noticed was that probably 80% of the people who were you know, interested in buying this high-end professional flying camera system, they were costing kind of 10 to 15,000 for a system. And um, you know, about 80% of our interested leads would end up not purchasing because there was so much unknown around how much is this thing going to cost me? What if I spend all this time building it? It wasn't so much the cost because these guys were spending 10 grand on a lens without blinking an eye. And that's like one prime lens. And it was more about if I spend three weeks of my time and 10, 15 grand on this thing, and then I go crash at my first flight, then that's, I'm going to feel like an idiot. That's just going to be a colossal waste of time. So I, I have and, to jump in here and say that actually yeah. happens a lot because I had, a lot. I, I was, I spoke for one of the other drone companies at their sales meeting. I was their, uh, their speaker who came into their team meeting. And so part of what they did is they gave me a drone so that I could fly it and learn their product before I came and spoke to their sales team, which was an awesome gift because when it came to the door, I did they had said, hey, can we pay you in a drone? And I said, no, I didn't have an interest. And so they paid me in cash and gave me a drone. And I was, awesome. really, I was really excited to get it. And my kids thought, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. This is like four years ago, three years ago. And, you know, drones had just become really hot. I, I read the manual. I assembled the whole thing. I took it outside. My wife and kids literally went to get their shoes on. And before they walked outside, I had crashed it into a tree and shaved <laughs> off all of the four propellers just down to nubs. And they came yeah. out and the thing's laying on the ground and the camera had snapped off. And I'm like, yeah. And my wife said, how long like, did yeah, you have it up? Toy. Three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that and that that was all too common especially especially like six years ago right <laughs> and so that was that was the big unknown it is and we figured okay if there's some way we could overcome that then we could really increase our conversion of these people that have the desire to shoot 
high quality video from the sky because we had all these people that wanted what we had, but there was just too much of an unknown for them to kind of make the purchasing decision. So we started building these little tiny trainer drones in Austin and sticking a, a little holder on that you could stick a GoPro on it. We, we did all the soldering. We put it all kind of bubble wrapped it all and we put it in a box and we'd say, look, for a thousand bucks, here's a little you know, kit drone that's all pre-programmed and pre-built for you. You can put a GoPro on it. You can fly this thing around and you can at least get a sense for what it's like to get aerial photos and video, but it won't be stabilized or anything you could actually use in a production, but it'll like give you an idea of what it's like to fly a camera around. And by the way, the big, you know, $15,000 system, it flies exactly like that. So if you're able to fly this thing and you learn to fly it, then you'll be able to fly the big one. And of course for them, it's just like, Oh, okay, cool. A thousand bucks, cool <laughs> toy, flying RC helicopter, like we'll take it. And so that was really easy to get people to at least, you know, kind of try that. And, and most of the people, I think over 70% of people that we sold those systems to came back and bought the $15,000 one within a couple of months. And so we're like, okay, this is working really well to, to, you know, get people kind of be the gateway drug into aerial <laughs> photography. <laughs> And so uh, we ended up, I went back to Frank, you know, they're, they're running the China operation. I said, look, we need to put all these components in one box so that it's really easy for the user to just assemble themselves, put together and, and go out and, and be the training wheels for, you know, getting into uh, flying cameras and stuff. And that ended up being the Phantom One, which was a little white quadcopter that really didn't do anything but fly a GoPro on a fixed mount and really didn't have any DJI tech in it. It was all off the shelf, you know, or, or parts from other vendors and suppliers that we just kind of made a shell and kind of put it all in one box and made it look kind of consumer friendly. And I took it up and down the East and West coast to all the different camera shops that we had been buying all of our equipment from for the last five years and said, look, take a chance on this, put four of them on your shelf, just buy four from me, see what happens. And I'm like the, you know, selling the, the milkshake machines up and down like the, <laughs> the McDonald's guy, you know, and I would do a little dog and pony, fly this thing around. And so I got a bunch of these camera shops to be like, okay, we'll take four. Well, every single person that bought them, you know, within days would be like, wow, all four sold in two days. Give us eight, you know, give us 12. And um, I remember when uh, B&H was big camera supplier website and, and, and retail store in New York, um, they heard about it called they said hey give us uh give us 24 of those and i was like wow that's a huge first order you know these are like 600 dollars little drones and um they they got the drones they sold them out in two days <laughs> and then he's like uh okay i need like 72 of these things so I, I we do that order they sell those out immediately and then he he calls you up and says how many of these can you put on a container I'm like 960. He's like, here's my credit card. <laughs> and so we're like, oh, wow. And that was like 45 days into, into making this thing. So, you know, fast forward, it, the thing blows up. The consumer drone market, we kind of create by accident um, because this thing was supposed to be a trainer for, you know, commercial drone pilots. And uh, we end up doing like 130 million in sales that year. We do 450 million in sales the next year. Uh, the company does over a billion the following year. And now today they're, you know, they're a $20 billion company in, in 2019. So, um, it was a pretty wild ride to just see that that uptick and and really just listen to the user and listen to customers and understand like what is it that they want from this technology and how do you delight them with an incredible user experience that that gives them a, a new way of telling a story that they didn't have before um, and so that's that that's kind of the consumer 
the consumer side of the industry. And then, of course, commercial drones, totally different. No one really cares about flying the drone around. They just needed to collect a bunch of data and create models and things like that. But um, yeah, that was that was kind of the first five, six years, seven years, something like but, that. But that journey, is, which is pretty wild. That was like, you know, by, by, you know, running a company with a fire hose in your mouth. I mean, you know, I yes. just wrote down a couple of things that I wanted to sort of reiterate. And one is, it's kind of what I said earlier, not everybody can look two and three and four steps ahead, but to go from, you know, sort of joining on the side is sort of the, the founder of North America and for D- DJI going on the side for a company that's doing $3 million to 12 months later doing over $20 million it takes the right person at the helm of the company to be able to be thinking those two and three steps ahead. So why do you think you have that? Where does that come from? Um, I think because I am such a consumer myself and I love tech and products and gadgets. And, you know, I, I own the very first Palm Pilot ever created. I, I, mm-hmm. I was among the first shipment of the first 50 Rio PMP 300, you know, portable MP3 players when I was in college. Um, I mean, I just, I love cutting edge tech and I, and I have a really high standard for what that user experience should be like. And so if I'm helping develop a product that I'm the customer for, I just really consider like, what are the things that would make the biggest difference for me? And, and I feel like if you can make a product and you can deliver it to people and give them the necessary support and content and walkthroughs to make them feel comfortable with the product so that they have a great experience. So net promoter score is like the number one metric that I track on every product we've ever made and everything we've ever sold to a customer, right? So that is all I care about. The people who buy this thing, how likely are they to uh, you know, recommend it to a friend? Hmm. And that's, that's net promoter score. And that, to me, that's all that matters. You can, I love doing all the whiz bang marketing and incredible content and use all the tricks and tracking pixels. And, you know, we love all the systems and that's what we do now at Gwyn partners is we help, you know, technology companies finish their products, productize and put those final touches on their innovations to make them delightful user experiences, figure out who their real target customer is, where they shop, how to reach them. And we do all the high tech marketing and, you know, content and, and inbound and outbound automation. And, you know, I love all that stuff, but it all has to go back to when people trade their hard earned, you know, Babylonian magic money system credits, right? <laughs> when they, when they give you their money to buy your thing, whether it's software, platform, hardware, et cetera, service, whatever, at the end of the transaction, do they feel like, man, I, that was some of the best money I ever spent? Or do they feel like, eh, that was kind of, uh, you know, and most products are kind of like, a, eh, if I had to do it again, I don't know if I'd spend that much money on it. Right. And so we, that's where we start is finding a way to ensure that when people part with that money in, in exchange for that service or that product, they're delighted by the experience such that they're not just happy they bought it. They're shouting it from the rooftops going, you got to check this thing out. It's amazing. Look at how awesome this is. Look at what I can do with it. And it's like, again, it all goes back to the value proposition, right? It's like, if, 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 if I don't want to sell anything that people aren't absolutely thrilled with, but I think if you can start there, then you just do all the right things. You do all the right marketing. You, you tell the story. You, you be passionate about the thing that you're selling because you actually care about it. You know, don't go sell something that you're not into. Like if I was, I don't even know what the example would be, but if I was creating some, you know, crochet kit, you know, <laughs> or, 
Is that what it's called when you like make hats and, and Pro- know, probably, but I'm just, la- I'm just laughing yeah. to see Colin crochet. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, I, I don't think I would be able to be that passionate about that. Now, maybe if I learned how to do it and got super into it and I saw what the downfalls were with the existing systems and we made it better <laughs> then I could be super excited, but that's just not something I'm really into. And so I'm not going to go make one of those and, or, or look for a job selling one of those. And, and, and so often I see people starting businesses, looking at spreadsheets only. And I've had friends of mine that say, Oh, I want to leave corporate America and I want to go, I want to be an entrepreneur, you know, and they'll come ask me for advice. Cause I've, all I've ever done is have my own businesses. And they'll be like, I'm looking at, you know, opening a great clips, you know, uh, franchise or, um, or a subway, you know, what I like about this one is these numbers and that, and what I like about that one, I'm like, wait a second, you're talking to me about maybe doing like a haircut place or a sandwich making place or some other car wash. You know, I'm like, you do realize like, this is what you're going to be doing day in and day out. Like, are you into cutting hair? Like, are you into <laughs> making sandwiches? Because if you're not like, I strongly advise you not do this. <laughs> right. No, I, I, I fully agree. So, so this is kind of a good transition. So you, you left that world and, and you founded Gwyn Partners. How, how did you walk away from that? And how did you decide that you were going to start taking sort of what you learned with the, the drone industry and take it to other companies and their marketing and their productization? How did you make that transition? Well, that's a great question. So uh, it was partially forced. Um, that was a great <laughs> oh, oh yeah, that happens. That happened. That people yeah. say, "How did you become a full-time professional speaker?" And I said, "Well, I got laid off." So that was, yeah. you know, eh. yeah. So it was, uh, you know, when when Frank, the founder and CEO of DJI China, and his partner Swift, his kind of key key partner, you know, the three of us came up with our deal because the company was doing like $3 million in revenue. They weren't funding me with anything. All they were doing was giving me extended terms on, on these gimbals, you know? So we just kind of came up with this deal on our own. Well, fast forward a few years and all of a sudden they're on their way to doing a billion dollars of revenue. Now, all the people that were on the board of this tiny little company, now it's like, who, top who's, priority. Who's right? Colin? And, yeah. <laughs> who is this white guy in Texas that's getting 48% of our number one market? And, you know, who made this deal? And and so it's like, and by the way, now our brand is created. We're known worldwide. We look like a total Western brand. You know, how much additional value is, is he bringing? Do we really need, does he really need to have 48% of, of uh, the North American market? And so, that began the, the, the renegotiation process, um, <laughs> which ended up being like comical. Well, and it happens um, to a lot they, of us, right? It happens to a yes. lot of people who are entrepreneurs, whether even if you work for yourself, the terms change in the world and you that's just right. got to be able to that's pivot. Right. Yeah. You have to be able to be flexible. And, and, and that's some, one of the, like, the biggest things in terms of like personal growth. You know, people talk about Colin from season five, 15 years ago, Amazing Race and how much of a hothead I was and, and you know, how much more like calm and collected we are this time around. You know, so much of it has been from these incredibly difficult life experiences where I helped this company, you know, get up to a, a half a billion dollars in revenue in like the first three or four years of working there. And then they come back and say, hey, we want to trade you. You're 48% of North America and we want to give you equity in the global company because I was also the global chief innovation officer. So I, I oversaw kind of product 
direction and product design for the global company. And they're like, we want you to really focus on your CIO position for the global company. And we want you to get a piece of the whole pie. I'm like, okay, well, cool. Let, you know, let's talk about that. What does that look like? And they're like, we want to, we, we want to take your 48% <laughs> of DJI North America and trade you a third of a percent of the global company. <laughs> and I'm like, well, let's see. North America does 52% of all of your sales. And, um, you know, it doesn't, t I don't even think I need to pull a calculator out to know that you're pretty far off on that number. Um, and so I just said, that's okay. We'll just leave it how we have it because we have a contract in place. Things are going well for me. I see no reason to change this because that is not a super attractive offer. And, you know, what, what, what I found, what was really interesting is you figure out that like, you know, I did not think of it this way at that time. I took everything very personally and I was very offended by the whole thing because how dare they? And I did so much for their company and you know, my ego was very, very involved. What I've learned since is like, we were just playing two different games. Like we were both looking at a monopoly board, but the rules by which they were playing monopoly were very different than the rules by which I was playing monopoly. And, and when sometimes when you're working with a, company in a different part of the world that has totally different indoctrination around cultures and ways of doing business and what's considered acceptable. Like, for example, in America, you know, when you line up to, to get in line to buy a thing at a counter, right? We just happen to be indoctrinated to, to say first come first serve and, and you're served in the order that you show up to the counter. So everyone just kind of stands in a loose line and, and works their way toward the front of the counter. Well, in China, it's a pretty populated place. Lines mean nothing. It's whoever gets up to the counter first. And so if you give somebody two feet in front of you, in front of the next person, like you are going to have somebody come jump in that spot and they're not trying to offend you. It's just, that's the way that's, it works. That's here. the rules of the and game. Yeah, that's right. And, and what you realize is, what can be really challenging sometimes is when you're doing business where you where you think you have the shared intention, the shared goal, and you do have a shared intention of of bringing this technology to the world, but at the same time, like you know, there's there's a different set of what's okay, and it wasn't that they thought they were being you know wrong or you know not honorable. They were just like, we don't the value that you bring now is much less than the value that you were bringing us four years ago when we were tiny and, and, you know, just getting started. So, you know, this is our new offer and this is what we think is acceptable. And I just said, no, that's okay. We'll just leave it the way it is. And they're like, nah, we'll just drain all the money out of the bank account and pretend like you never existed. <laughs> so they just cleaned like eight or $10 million out of the bank account. And that was, that was that. And so, I, so that was the one lawsuit I was ever part of in my life. And I had to go, okay, this is a Texas LLC and that's not exactly the way it works. <laughs> and ultimately we settled and they bought out my shares and, you know, it was, uh, it was pennies on the dollar, but whatever. It was a great life experience and kind of moved on to developing other products. And uh, that was like 2015, um, made some new products, uh, you know, moved on, started, started another couple of companies and, um, that are still ongoing and existing. And it was about two years ago there, the commercial drone industry was really looked like it was, it was going to be really coming online, which it is. Um, and there was a number of companies that were really wanting our expertise and what we had done with DJI and 3d robotics and hangar and kind of productizing and launching these different products onto the market. And so instead of like, 
doing one thing, we figured, you know what, if we can help in this transition period of like the initial launch onto the market and the initial productization, that's where we can be the most valuable. And so it was essentially the team that's been with me, you know, for the last 12 years, some of them since before before DJI and, and some of them since 3DR and some of them since Hangar. And it was kind of the core team that's worked together over all these last companies. We all, you know, formed Gwen Partners and we now have, you know, 15, 20 clients at a time, half from inside the U.S., half from around the world, most of which are in the drones and autonomous robotics space, um, but a handful of which are in just other fun, high-tech toys that we just happen to like, like electric powered hydrofoil surfboards, you know, that are also dealing with like high power brushless motors and big electric batteries and, and speed controllers and wireless hand controllers. So a lot of the same tech that's in drones, but you know, in a, in a luxury, you know, uh, high performance hydrofoil surfboard. So, um, but most of what we do is kind of in our, in our core space of, of drones and autonomous robotics. And, you know, we, we take all the lessons we've learned over the last 10 or 12 years and we, um, try to, you know, uh, guide and usher these these entrepreneurs that have closed their seed rounds or their A rounds, and try to you know help them navigate the waters of scaling a company, and try to get them to to not make quite as many mistakes as we made uh, <laughs> in some of our endeavors. And um, yeah, it's it's really fun. It's really rewarding to be able to um, kind of share that past experience and and bring some you know other insights and perspectives to the table. Uh, that that help these entrepreneurs, you know, through these initial years of their business. Well, and I've noticed because I follow you and Christy on Instagram, and 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 I've been out to your office that you you do get involved with a lot. Like you were talking about, like these these electronic surfboards and and all these different things. There are a lot of fun toys. It looks like it's fun to be Colin and Christy's kids with all of these electronic <laughs> toys that <laughs> uh, you're helping develop through all of your clients now. Because it's not just drones. There seems to be you know there was seemed to be like electronic surfboards around. There seemed to be like Nerf guns. There were all there were all kinds of things. And I thought, yeah. This must be a great place to grow up. It is. It is. It's VR. It's um, you know consciousness, healthcare, wellness tech. It is fun uh, toy guns that are that are cooler than paintball or airsoft or Nerf guns that we're developing. It's it's surf tech foils and electric surfboards and electric hydrofoils and then drones and flying robots and <laughs> some of which you can actually fly in. One of our clients, Lift Aircraft has a man drone and I was just flying around in it uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was, uh, super cool. Yeah. I saw, Um, I saw, I saw the pictures and then I, and then I saw you a couple days later. I'm like, how high did you go? And you admitted you only went a couple, only a couple (laughs) feet off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe 10 feet, but you know, (laughs) to be fair, the ballistic parachute system was not even installed at the time. So, um, and and we were supposed to be like another six months before I was allowed to get in it. And I just was like, you know what? I'll keep it low guys. I just gotta, I just gotta fly this thing. We won't tell, we won't tell anyone except for the fact that, (laughs) you know, I'm going to promote this show. So everyone in the drone industry will have heard. So, you know, everybody will now know (laughs) you flew it six months early. Hey, I've got a couple more questions for you. We're going to let this, this episode go a little longer because I've got a lot more. We haven't even touched on the amazing race and things like that. But first, I have to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing. 
Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Colin Gwynn. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Colin, before we kind of switch gears to the amazing race. That's funny. By the uh, way, I may go do that now. Oh, I didn't know that they existed. Podfly? You're thinking about starting a podcast. So, so, so go <laughs> to. Great ad. See, it, it worked. Bam. We've got a new customer. They actually, I will, I will be honest. They are the best vendor I've ever worked with in my life, both awesome. as a speaker and podcaster, but also before. They have come through every time. And anytime I'm like, oh, can we tweak this? They're like, yeah, we'll make it work. So uh, I, I like podfly.net. So check them out. Um, now I'm so happy that they might get a client. I forgot what I was going to ask you. No. Um, what I wanted to ask you was what advice do you have? Cause you have, you've obviously done this yourself going back to your days of, you know, helping promote the, the fancy homes and everything else all the way through this like gr massive growth with DJI. And now what you've done with Gwyn partners and all of the clients that you've worked with and continue to work with, what advice do you have for an entrepreneur who wants to scale a business? So an, so advice for an entrepreneur that wants to scale a business or start a business? I, I would say in this case, scale. I usually ask about starting, but based on your expertise, you know, there's- And, and, and when you say scale, they're, they're at maybe, you know, less than 10 million in revenue and they're sure. trying to get to 100 million in revenue, something like that. Absolutely. They have something that's not a solopreneur business. They have something that they can grow, but they've never done it before. What advice would you have for them? Focus on people. Focus on on culture, human resources, people, shared shared vision. Um, it's easy when you're like a twelve or fifteen person company, all working in the same spot, to like it. Just you inherently know where you're going and and where the bus is pointed because you're there. It's such high fidelity communication between you. But when you start scaling to you know fifty plus people, hundreds of people, thousands of people, which which we did. At DJI in a very short time, um, you know the the difficult thing is it's not just automatic for everyone to know what the shared intention or the mission of the company is. And I know that sometimes it seems like silly to do these like offsides where you come up with what's our mission and what are our pillars and what do we stand for and what. But it's like man, that stuff is so critical because if you can do a really good job of painting the picture of the future that you guys are all creating together and you can be really clear we've even started doing as much as creating um videos of where the company is going to be or what the product is going to be that doesn't exist yet and it's almost like a video prd for the product or for the company and the, the more clear you can be about how it's all going to look and the value that you're going to be providing and, you know, how the, how your employers are going to be feeling, how your customers are going to be feeling, what it's going to be like for them to be on a journey with your brand. You know, it's all about intention. And so if you can be super clear on what your company values, what your priorities are and what you're trying to build. And that is, and that is so often known by the few at the top, but not necessarily, you know, uh, distributed throughout the entire organization or memorialized anywhere. You know, I would say go through the necessary steps and effort to do that because then, when when you know, 
employee number 202 comes on, it's just part of the onboarding process to understand what the culture is, what we value, what we, what we're our intention and what we're trying to do in this world. And, and this is what we're trying to build. And this is when we want to have it done by the more clear all that is, then the easier it is for those, you know, later stage employees to know all the little, should I go this way or should I go that way? Every time they hit a Y in the road, whether it's in code that they're writing or partnership deals or ambassadors that they're trying to bring on or resellers or you name it. And they're going to have all these little tiny decisions to make throughout the day. And if they don't have a really clear picture of where the company's trying to go, then it, it can be challenging to know what's in the best interest of the company's overall goal and overall stated intention. And so I don't know. I think that's the, the number one thing that, that has made the biggest difference in, in both success and failure on our side. Sure. And being able to, to get those people to scale with you. And, and the, the one thing I noticed, I got to meet several of the people who work at Gwyn Partners, is you're like a family. I mean, you're, you're still on that oh, yeah. smaller side in, in this particular business. But the people who are there, you've been together through a lot of these other things. And, you know, they definitely, you know, I mean, I, I would say there was a, a brother and sisterhood with the people you were working with, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and I would say my biggest advice for people in life is really think about what lights you up and do that. And one of the things that lights me up is having that type of relationship with the people that I work with. And so I have found a way to, to have that. And, you know, anyone can find a way to have your cake and eat it too. If you just think outside the box and focus more on what really brings you joy and happiness and what gets your vibes up and just act from that place, do the things that make you stoked and don't try to solve, you know, hard, challenging problems from a place of stress or, you know, feeling defeated because that's just never going to work out. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's even bigger, more broad advice for anyone that's trying to scale a company. Well, and that actually might be the answer to the next question. And, and the next question is, so I, when I go into companies and do a workshop, I do a thing often, I call it the paradox of potential because we think potential is so exciting, but you know, there were a lot of people building flying helicopters and yet you and DGI took it to, you know, half billion dollars. You know, so the question is, how come some entrepreneurs, even in the same business, they ha they all have potential and some people go much farther across that gap from potential to performance? What's that delta? Um, you know, probably self-sabotaging tendencies and stuck traumas that they haven't dealt with because we really are, you know, truly creating our realities and you know, there's a lot of subconscious and unconscious behaviors that we have as humans that came from our childhood and programming and culture and things like that, um, that I think, you know, really dictates what our reality ends up looking like. And so, you know, an example is if people are trying to scale a company and be really profitable, but they grew up their whole life hearing it's harder to get a rich man into heaven than a camel through the eye of the needle, or it's, you know, money is the root of all evil or, you know, rich people are bad. If they grew up hearing that their whole lives and they have a subconscious belief that money is evil and rich people are bad people, then like they're going to make sure to do whatever they need to do to not be that person. And so I, I honestly, like when I look at it, I, I think it comes down to, you know, self-sabotaging practices or, or just not necessarily self-sabotaging, but like self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, you know, you are going to create the reality that you have faith in existing. And so if you have faith that you can build a giant company because you're providing a great value to people who really 
enjoy the thing that you're bringing to the market and you believe that that can happen and you don't have any limiting beliefs that are that are in opposition to you achieving those goals, then you have a much higher likelihood of achieving those goals than if you want to quote unquote scale and be successful, but you have four or five core beliefs that are in direct opposition to your success, that's going to be a challenging road. And and that's actually something I picked up about you when I met you several months ago. I walked out thinking, wow, that is, I like the way that guy thinks and I need to think more like that. So that's totally congruent, <laughs> that's totally congruent with the person you were at your uh, conference table when I met you several months back. So that's that's a good answer. Hey, I want to switch gears here. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to switch gears and talk about the amazing race. Because as I said in the, in the intro, my wife has been one of the biggest fans. We've watched every season. Uh, season five, there was a Colin who was a bit of a hothead is the way you've been described in season five. And that would be the nicest description. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I liked you in season five, but whatever. Uh, season 31 I think the way I'd describe you is you'd become very zen. And I have to give some credit. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the lovely Christy Woods, your wife. Um, how did Colin transform? Um, lots of challenging life experiences that uh, will definitely, you know, uh, cause you to take pause and, and take inventory and expand your perspective. You know, that in conjunction with Christy is a, is a life coach and, you know, we started practicing a lot of the things that she was learning and getting trained on. This was maybe six, seven years ago. We started putting a lot of those things into practice in our own relationship. And we really started seeing the effects in our life and our relationship from kind of, you know, broadening perspective. So practice trying to see as broad of a perspective as you can from any given situation. B, see your part in the play. Know that you are, in fact, creating your own reality. Like you are never a victim of your circumstance. You get to, you get to choose. Your free will is that you get to choose how you want to perceive any given circumstance or event or whatever. And if you usually, if you wait long enough, you can always look back on anything that seems so bad in the moment and realize, oh, that was actually exactly what I needed at that time. So if you can be in the moment when it seems impossibly bad and just have faith that eventually this is all going to make sense and try and maintain that broader perspective, you know, that and then, you know, having a daily practice, you know, a meditation practice, like essentially not just meditation, not just yoga, not just fitness, not just eating right, not just getting good sleep, like overall prioritizing your well-being because if you, if you realize if I am if I am optimized from a well-being perspective and I'm feeling good and I'm not being my own worst critic and beating myself up all day long for making little mistakes or, or choosing the wrong lane in traffic or whatever, then chances are I'm going to actually be showing up as a better father, a better partner to my, to my, in my romantic relationships, as a better you know, business partner, employee, employer, et cetera then it's worth and and I'm going to have a more enjoyable experience of life because I'm prioritizing doing the things that make me feel good then you know that's the daily practice do the things that that make you feel energized and and optimistic and alive and lit up and you know have have a practice of maintaining some level of awareness and observation of yourself and how you you're acting in situations and where you may be having unconscious or subconscious or pre-programmed 
responses to different stressors and and you know stress responses and triggers and things like that and then kind of track those down and see what unhealed wound that might have come from from childhood like we're all just you know quasi robot quasi mm-hmm. uh you know biological beings that you know one of my one of my core tenets that i always remind myself of is like don't give yourself too much credit you know like we are we are just made up of the sum of our experiences and if you can if you can be aware of that and you just start instead of prior what i did for so many years was i prioritized trying to achieve a certain level of success in business and and after achieving a certain level of success in business and being you know really going from all of you know my childhood and high school and college being this really ex- excited fun outgoing extreme sports you know joking around all the time having this great time then going into work mode after college and and trying to achieve some you know uh whatever success is supposed to be and, and where happiness is supposed to live and really kind of went off in a direction that, that wasn't in support of my overall mental health and well-being and, and sustainability, even though I had achieved all this, you know, what was supposed to be success. And so I think ultimately was realizing that really all we all want to do is feel good and, and giving back to others feels good helping other people feels good. Connecting with your loved ones in your life feels good. Taking care of yourself feels good. Doing fulfilling work. So it's like prioritize feeling good and watch how your life around you will just completely transform. And I think that's like, you know, we we fully manifested going back on the race and winning the race. We wrote the whole thing out. Like I can show you what we wrote before ever going back on the race and it literally all happened exactly as we intended. So the first time we got on the race, um, you know, Christy was actually Miss Teen USA back in like the late 90s. And so she used to get hit up about, hey, you should send in a tape for Bachelor, Bachelorette, this show, that show. And she got a call one day about, hey, you should send in a tape for Amazing Race. We had never heard of it. It had only been on the air for a few years. And um, we looked up the show. We're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. You travel around the world, do all these cool, you know, experiences. And so we made a tape, we send it in and then, you know, you go through all these kind of narrowing down processes and eventually they were like, we want you to be one of the teams. And so that's, that's how we got on the first time. Nice. And then this last one that was the most recent episode was sort of a reunion. It had people who had been on survivor, people who had been on big brother and then people who were alumni of the amazing race. And you were one of the teams selected to come back and just really quick, give us a quick synopsis of, of that season, and then you won. So tell us what that was like. Yeah, uh, it, it was amazing, both getting back on and, and going through the experience. I mean, we hadn't watched, watching The Amazing Race the first time around was fairly traumatic for us and our relationship. <laughs> so we actually never watched our season again, and we actually didn't watch The Amazing Race for 14 years. Um, <laughs> and then we decided to watch it with our kids, our old season, a little over a year ago and we realized and remembered what an incredible experience it was that we were able to kind of see through all the unconscious behaviors and stuff like that that was so traumatic for us the first time and we said wouldn't that be cool to go do that again and take this new way of like creating our own reality and coming from collaboration and love and you know not being so cutthroat and competitive like what would that be like if we took that way of living into the container of the amazing race and so we we did some different practices around you know visualization and, and quantum manifestation and ended up 
sending a text to just the right person, I guess. We had no idea, but apparently they were already casting for the season. So they ended up responding back a few weeks later and saying, actually, we're, we're casting for an All-Stars right now of sorts. And if you're interested, we're, we're leaving in four weeks. Um, and so it was like, whoa, that was fast. Um, and so we ended up packing be, our bags. Be careful, and, and, be careful what you manifest is probably. Careful what you wish for. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, we, we were like, we just looked at each other and we're like, really? We were thinking maybe we'll do the Amazing Race someday again, like in the next five years. Um, and so anyways, yeah, we, uh, we, good timing, I guess, and got on the show. And um, this time around, it was just totally enjoyable. We, we made the decision that we were going to prioritize the experience and maximizing the experience and, you know, really feeling into how grateful we were to get to do all the amazing challenges and meet all the amazing people and see all the cool places and experience the different cultures. And we just focused on all of that. And we focused on how great all the other teams were. And we did all these different, you know, gratitude practices around each team and what we loved about them. And I think that kept us in a place of kind of, you know, high vibration and, and, you know, coming more from love. And, you know, that, that gets you to, uh, I think a higher likelihood of, you know, the, the reality all working out in the way that you, that, that you're envisioning it. And we did a lot of visualization around running up to the mat first. Um, and it all just kind of ended up working out that way. So, you know, I don't know, call it coincidence. Or well, it was, it, it, a- <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I had met you and Christy about a month before the season began to air. And I mm-hmm. purposely did not tell my wife that I had been at your office. Uh, because she's such a fan of the show, we were going to try and coordinate where we would go to dinner, but I wouldn't tell her who we were going to eat with. And I would say it was a client of mine, like Kevin and Carrie. And then right before you walked into the restaurant, I go, no, no, no. I remember their names are Colin and Christy. And then I would surprise (laughs) her. But the problem was your schedule and my schedule never allowed for that to happen. So I was so bummed because every time I would see you guys on the show, I was so excited because you were always a strong contender. You guys were always doing well. And it was so fun to watch the teamwork that you and your wife had developed. And clearly, you know, from the story that you've shared with us about the work that you've done over six years, I mean, it was clear that that's who you guys were as people. It was so much fun to watch. And I felt so bad I couldn't share it with my wife. And then a couple weeks before the finale, through our mutual friend, you invited us to go to the cast party and the watching party that night. And I got to say, it's probably one of my wife's, you know, five or 10 favorite events that we've ever done. And we were sitting one table next to you. And what I didn't realize until halfway through the finale, the two hour finale, you guys hadn't seen the two hour finale. You lived it. You knew you won. We didn't know. (laughs) Although I did assume that you wouldn't have invited our friend Dave out from California if you hadn't won. So I figured you'd maybe hit one. But uh, <laughs> but it was so fun to watch you sitting with Tyler and Corey, who were the second place team and the love that you guys had for each other and the friendship. And you could see it on the screen that you guys were at this point where if you won great, if they won great and and there was such a camaraderie. But it was so fun watching you and watching them watch the show. I, I was watching the TV and I kept glancing over. And so it, it was kind of a unique experience uh, for my wife and I that I, I'm, I'm always grateful that you included us in that. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was such a blast. That night was really cool. And And you're exactly right. You know, it's like you remember running your portion of the race. But when we watch the race, we're watching it for the first time, like everyone else. And you're always like, Oh, that's what was going on with that team. Or that's what was going on over here. And Oh, interesting how they choose to kind of tell the story. And so it's, it, it's like just as, as interesting and riveting for us as it is for anyone else. Cause uh, 
you know, we get to see such a small piece of the of the puzzle as you're going. Yeah, it was it, it, it was quite in, it was quite interesting to, to be able to experience that and, and see that. But the funny part was, is I was posting pictures online and my my 22 year old daughter and her fiance love the show. And so I started walking around to Phil, the host of the show, you, <laughs> uh, Team Fun and a few other people who I'd met at the cast party. And I said, would you guys film like a quick video before the, the finale started? And so I started yes. sending these videos of you guys saying, hey, Jackie uh, and Thomas, enjoy enjoy the finale the amazing race and she literally texted me halfway through and goes thomas her fiance thinks my parents are the coolest people in the world so we well, scored I mean, major son-in-law that's awesome major son-in-law points so that was awesome that so. is awesome and, and then that's he was awesome. and then he was like how are they even there and she's like i don't know things like that happen and they, they just <laughs> dad meets weird people and you know uncle dave has these connections so well colin this is possibly the longest episode ever of cool things entrepreneurs do and also <laughs> one of the best so you shared a lot of of, of a great life story, a life arc of, of things you've done, but also a lot of nuggets of information on a, a way to live as an entrepreneur and maybe as a person. And so I want to thank you for, for coming on and being part of it. Do you have any sort of parting words for the people who listen? Um, well, I will say that Chrissy and I put together a free video series, um, you know, for people that are in relationship, you know, uh, of kind of the low hanging fruit that allowed us to kind of break through the the stuff that we were in in the first part of our relationship and get to where we are now. Um, and it's at Colin and and it's free and it's awesome stuff. So you, if you haven't already checked it out, you should check it out too, Tom. So no, I didn't know about that. So I will go, I will go and check that out. And actually I would like to interview Christy on the show. And I decided not to do you at the same time because I wanted to go deep into the drone industry and I didn't want to overshadow her. I would like to talk to her about her life coaching and, and her business Yes, because I think, be awesome. I think what she does is on such a good, you know, you would use the word vibration. I don't know if that's the term I would use, but, but on such a good tone that uh, if she's willing, I'd like to do an episode with her as well. I think that'd be super cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is, this has been a great conversation. No, this has been fun. And thank you to everybody who tuned in. I say it every time. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we even do the show? So thank you so much for tuning in. If you like the show, tell a friend because uh, the number one way people tell me they found cool things entrepreneurs do was from someone they knew saying, Hey, check out this interview. And then they went back and binge some other shows and they've stuck around going forward. So if you like the show, tell a friend, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, there is a cool things entrepreneurs do a Facebook page at cool podcast on Twitter. And then you can find me on all the social medias. It's just at Tom Singer, T H O M S I N G E R.com. Hey, we're going to be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody just as cool as Colin Gwynn. I know you're thinking how in the world is that possible? But we'll, <laughs> we'll figure it out. Uh, but in the meantime, challenge yourself to go try some new things. And while you're out there doing that, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at, at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>